Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. At the start of the 17th century, the initial phase of European exploration of the North American continent slowly began to move towards colonization. This early, fledgling colonial movement was in need of strong, talented, and determined leaders. Bartholomew Gosnold obtained backing to attempt to found an English colony in the New World, and, in 1602, he set sail in a small bark named the Concord, with 32 on board. Captain Gosnold pioneered a direct sailing route due west from the Azores to what later became New England, arriving at Cape Elizabeth off the southern coast of Maine. He and his men eventually made their way further south along the coastline with the intention of establishing a colony and small fishing outpost in the southern part of New England. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. The backbone of Gosnold's colony on a little island inside of a pond, inside of a little island off the Atlantic coast, would be fishing operations, drying out fish, bringing it back to Europe, a cheap source of protein that would be supplemented by fur trading if they could. And believe it or not, the stuff that Gosnold really packed his ship with was sassafras. Yes, at this time, sassafras was seen as a, as a medicine. It could be used in medicines anyway to cure many different diseases, or at least treat many different diseases. The big one, of course, was the French pox, which we know today as syphilis, which is actually one of the few diseases that actually moved from the natives of the New World back to the Old World through the Spaniards, showing up in the port towns of Spain as early as 1494, 1493, somewhere in there, very quickly. People are people. They get into things with one another, and as you can imagine, it spread. But let's get back down to specifics on Gosnold's colony. June 5th, 1602, they're busy building their storehouse. Fifty armed natives arrive on Cuddyhunk Island. Some sources say this is the Mi'kmaq who they interacted with earlier, but the location of where Cuddyhunk Island is, Elizabeth Island as they called it, would probably indicate that it's the Wampanoag or their close relatives. Brereton records that he approached them as the representative of Godsnold's people, and he slapped his chest as a sign of peace, and he presented his weapon as an either-or. Did you come in peace, or did you come for war? Lucky for all the parties involved, the natives returned the gesture of peace. Brereton and the rest of Gosnold's men they communicated with the natives through signs and gestures that would be reciprocated on the other side. They didn't have the semi-shared vocabulary that the Mi'kmaq had further north. Actually, further evidence that this was not the Mi'kmaq. The same amount of French, English, and especially Basque words just aren't present. They're too far south. After this interaction, the natives would hang around. They would leave at night, but they would come around periodically. About two days after their first encounter, Gosnold's men share a meal with the natives. They sit around a fire together, and the natives share with them tobacco, many of the English never having it before or knowing really how to ingest it. And so the natives found it quite funny smoking tobacco for the first time. So the natives got a little joke out of that. But Gosnold's men had mustard, which is something the natives have not had yet. And so for the first time ever, the Englishmen give the natives mustard to try out. And just like tobacco, you got to get used to mustard. So to have a really strong mustard for the first time ever, the natives puckered their faces like they just ate a ghost pepper. And of course, the English were very amused by that. On another date, one native who got to know the English fairly well 
brought around his wife and daughter just to see the English, which means a couple things. One, he felt safe enough to bring his family to see this group of strangers whom he'd become somewhat familiar with, but also that the English were such an oddity for this area of New England that he would bring his family just to look at them. The English were just odd enough that they were kind of a sideshow, a freak show. And so from this little bit of the narrative, we can see that, yes, the natives felt some safety around Gosnold's men, but they were still incredibly foreign and strange to the people of southern New England. Very different than the main coast. Often, we don't actually really know when certain Europeans group really started showing up in different parts of the uh, east coast of what is now the United States because it was usually private traders who wanted to keep their trade clandestine. And so little details like this helped to kind of fish out, okay, were the English down in this area very often? Probably not. This is 1602, and all signs from the natives point to they're still an oddity. And in the midst of all this, Gosnold is harvesting sassafras. He already got a bunch of cod off the coast of Cape Cod, for which he named, and a couple natives actually help him cut down trees, probably in return for the metal tools they were using. But this is where things take a turn real quick. A couple of Gosnold's men, they steal a dugout canoe. They find it. They just find it on the beach and they take it because for them, that's an oddity. That's something they might take back to England and be like, look at this thing, which is something that happened before. The many times native watercraft especially were taken back to England or Paris and shown off. So Gosnold's men take this canoe and not too long afterward, a small group of natives chase two Englishmen along the beach who are looking for shellfish. The Englishmen, probably running on pure fear and adrenaline, managed to keep a pretty good distance from the natives, but not before one of them is shot by an arrow. Historians believe this second event was probably caused by the first event. The theft of the dugout canoe led to the change in relationship between the natives who were visiting the island and Gosnold's men. Now Gosnold, again, he's not looking to make a new nation. He's not even looking to make a sprawling colony that we'll know later as like Massachusetts Bay. He's not looking to make a uh, Virginia colony. He now is assessing all this new information. His boats are full of goods. The money is already essentially made. There's been this one violent attack, and he has noticed things have gone missing, implying that the natives have been stealing these valuable metal goods that they otherwise would have no access to. Finally, in assessing his provisions, he noticed that he really didn't have enough supplies, enough food to last over winter for the planned 20 men who would stay behind, one of those 20 being Gosnold himself while Bartholomew Gilbert would bring back all of their sassafras and organize a return to Gosnold's colony. And so when he gave his men the choice, there were still 12 guys who were willing to overwinter. But in his risk-reward calculations, Gosnold finally concluded that it was time for everyone to go home. The entire colony was to be packed up, and on June 12, 1602, they headed back to merry old England. And talk about perfect timing on their return, they dropped anchor on July 23rd at Exmouth, with the last loaf of bread and the last drop of water gone. But then the legal troubles began. As it turns out, Sir Walter Riley was not happy about this expedition, nor had he sanctioned it despite his nephews, or at least one nephew, being present. Riley argued that he had exclusivity or a monopoly on the resources coming from the area in which Gosnold went. Now, if you look at the original rights given to Humphrey Gilbert, his half-brother, that 600-mile zone from Roanoke would actually reach Cuddyhunk Island. In a straight line over the ocean, Cuddyhunk Island falls within that 600-mile range. Furthermore, Riley was still exercising his rights to this area. 
He claims in this very same year, 1602, he sent out an expedition under Captain Samuel Mace, who returned with his own cargo full of sassafras. And so Riley immediately seized his nephew's share of Gosnold's load and then proceeded to sue Gosnold for the entirety. Gosnold, not without his own connections, he was the first cousin once removed to Sir Francis Bacon, would have the ability to fight this lawsuit. But now let's move on to legacies. The place names, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, the Elizabeth Island chain. But here's a sneakier one. The Gosnold-Riley affair back in England demonstrated the need to get Sir Walter Riley out of the way. And we will see how this will spiral out into creating the New England that we all know and love. But the most direct and important legacy probably lies with Gosnold himself, a name you might recognize. As it turns out, his experience in this short-lived colony that he founded would inspire him to imagine grander things further south. And he became the prime mover, or the first mover, into putting together the Virginia Company of London. And he did much towards guaranteeing a royal charter for that company. And then, he was a big part of the financing and then he himself and his extended family became the leadership of the very early settlement of Jamestown, the place where Gosnold would die, as many did those early years. Because of his short-lived colony, we see the defeat of Sir Walter Riley. We see the founding of the Virginia Company of London, the settlement of Jamestown, and thus the beginning of the American South and permanent inhabitation of the English of the North American continent. But his colony, as important as it is because of the things it led to, directly or indirectly, the colony itself could have been very important had Gosnell just decided to stay and things gone his way and relations with the natives worked out. What could have been? Had the men stayed, Cuddyhunk would now be a national shrine, the first English settlement in America. Jamestown and Plymouth would be denied their glory. Join me next time as we continue our tale of the exploration and early settlement of New England. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.